Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner as they discuss Everyday Zen, Changing and Being Changed by the World. This is part two of this two-part conversation. So what happened after college? What, what happened in your life after college? Well, I went to the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa mm-hmm. and continued with my politics and smoking a lot of marijuana and mm-hmm. being really an alternative person. And because of that, being a little bit out, out of place in Iowa, which was actually a very conventional place. It was a place where people were meeting agents and networking, and I didn't even know what anybody was doing. I was just there in some highly idealistic way uh, of pursuing, you know, art. Uh, But uh, when I was there, uh, there was uh, marches against the Kent State massacres. I think this is right. Anyway, some kind of marches. And I was involved in that. And I remember I was right in the front of the line charging the police. And um, the, who were very scary, all full of armor and billy clubs and whatnot. And uh, somebody that was my friend was, you know, about a little bit more aggressive than I was. And he sort of hurled himself into the line of police. And they grabbed him and they started just beating him up, you know. And I remember I just couldn't, the, the, the same thing had happened to me when I was a child, where I saw somebody being beat up and I just couldn't stand it. So I grabbed this guy and yanked him away from the police so that they couldn't beat him up. And then, of course, they started beating me up and I was arrested and put in jail and all that. And um, after that, I thought, you know, this is going to do me and this is impossible. So when I get out of here, I'm not going to continue this. Hmm. I'm going to be... I kind of, I guess my life's banged back and forth between being very active and outgoing and being very inward. So I decided I would be more inward again. So when Iowa was finished with Iowa, I moved to California because that's where I learned you could study Zen. But mostly I was living as a hermit in the woods doing Zazen and trying to be quiet and write contemplatively. In California. In California. But before we go to California, at the writer's workshop, uh, you met Alan Liu. Yeah. And uh, tell us about Alan Liu. Well, he was sort of the opposite of me, because I remember my uniform in those days was uh, jeans, Mm -hmm. boots, and a work shirt, which I would wear every single day. His uniform was a powder blue pressed shirt, khakis, and uh, like uh, this kind of blue shirt, what do you call it, like oxblood shoes that you would wear, you know. So he was very preppy, and I was the opposite. So, but somehow we, we hit it off, and uh, we became friends immediately, and uh, we hung around constantly while we were there. And he was, had no, he was not... Uh, at that point, interested in Judaism at all. We were both writers, exploring new forms and new modes of writing. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people to meet and hang out and party with and things to do. And then, pretty much independently of one another, 
And for different reasons, we both moved to California when we got out of Iowa and uh, reconnected in California and continued our relationship. And that's when I got involved with Zen and he got involved with a number of spiritual pursuits and eventually um, joined me practicing Zen. Mm -hmm. And then his story unfolded through his Jewish practice after that. Mm -hmm. Um, You write about him in Jerusalem Moonlight. Um, Alan began Zen practice a few years after I did. He was always involved with spiritual practice, tried various things. I think eventually took up Zen because I was doing it, not that he was in the habit of following my lead. Rather, it was just there and a natural thing. We practiced together very closely for a number of years, both of us young and in a very exciting time of our lives during an exciting period in an exciting place. We went to Tassajara together. By then, Alan was divorced and I'd just married. So the three of us, Alan, Kathy, and I, drove to Tassajara to enter the training period. We got drunk along the way, got there late, lurching down the mountain road in our old car full of stuff, um, and, and so on. Um, but Alan um, became one of your closest long-time friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Did you know him? Well, you, you know, not well. I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I have a memory of uh, meeting you and Alan at uh, Green Gulch oh, with right. Charlie Halpern, our right. mutual friend, for a meeting that Charlie was putting on. Right. Uh, actually, it was about the Contemplative Mind uh, Society uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. So I think that's... Uh, and I heard about him, but um, um, but I didn't know him well. Mm-hmm. Um, when did he die? Uh, January the twelfth, two thousand and nine. And that had a big impact on you. Oh yeah, because it was so sudden. Yeah. 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 No, it was really. I don't know why. You know. I mean, we were very close, but somehow his death uh, mattered to me more than you would have thought, or I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Or he would have thought. So yes, it had a big impact on me. Yeah. And it changed my life, really. That's what made me... Um, I. Uh, it's a long story, but to make a long story short, I realized that uh, when someone uh, that, that you're close to dies, you have to somehow change your life. And so I realized that I had to change my life uh, in the direction of more compassion, more heartfelt compassion, because that was a characteristic of his life. So since he couldn't do that anymore, I would have to do it uh, on his behalf. And so I think that out of that came the book Training and Compassion and my enthusiasm now and, and commitment now to the compassion teachings and a life of compassion, really, uh, which I feel comes from him. So let's talk about the uh, everyday Zen and uh, training and compassion. Um, let me start with a, a question. Um, uh, our friend and colleague John Evans tells me that you're probably the only Zen teacher in this country who uh, has the right to be called Roshi Norman Fisher, and yet you don't use the title. Uh, why don't you use the title Roshi? Uh, uh, titles seem so distancing to me. 
know what I mean? When you have somebody having a title, then automatically they're like not a regular person. They're not a person that you can meet face to face. You have to meet them through the filter of this title and all that it means. And even just thinking about somebody in your mind that way, Rabbi so-and-so or Roshi so-and-so or His Excellency so-and-so, just when you think of them that way, they're automatically not just a naked human being in front of you. And so, uh, so there's that as an idea. But even if I didn't have that idea, just somehow the title gives me the creeps. You know, it just seems like, ick, you know, like why would you want that, you know? So I kind of insist on people not using that title. Um, on the other hand, if, if there's a publication or a publicity and they're going to give titles and everybody has to have a title, then, I let, you know, then they can put that title. I remember uh, when I was at, uh, did something at Upaya one time, I, I shocked them because they, they put publicity out and they automatically put titles and they put the title Sensei, Roshi Joan Halifax, Sensei Norman Fisher. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm Roshi. No, if, if she's Roshi Joan Halifax, I must be Roshi. <laughs> You have to use a title, don't use that one, use this one. So I recognize that, but, uh, but I really don't like the title. And I, and I think, you know, in, 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 in actual fact, like we have the idea that, like, if you get an MD, you're doctor, learner. If you get a PhD, you're doctor, learner. And it's an official thing. Once you have the degree, you have the title. No, I don't use the PhD. No, I know you don't. Yeah. But, but I'm saying that, you know, that's how we understand it, that the degree confers the title. Once you get the diploma, you, the title goes with it. But in reality, the term Roshi is not a title that goes with right. a degree. Right. It's a title that goes with an affectionate, long-time relationship that students have with the teacher. So, uh, anyway, it seems like extra, and mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I, don't, I really don't like it. It gives me the creeps, frankly. So what is the core idea of everyday Zen? Well, the core idea, I think, is that your life, your relationships, your work, your daily activity, that is your practice. The practice doesn't take place in the monastery, in the temple, on the meditation cushion, separate and apart from your life. It takes place in everything that happens in your life, and religion is supposed to be that which supports you in that, not something that takes you away from that, but that supports you in that. And so that's the idea of Everyday Zen. And when did you start Everyday Zen? Well, I retired as abbot of Zen Center in 2000, February of 2000 by prior arrangement with my wife. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was going to go forth in the world and figure out how to live. Mm -hmm. And there's no pensions or anything like that for abbots. And if you spend your entire life at Zen Center, you don't have any money. So we didn't have any money at all. I don't think we had anything in the bank, you know, literally. And I was given one year of my support, room and board, and and a stipend, to live on, to help, figure you know, yeah, and, and help also reorient the new abbot and take care of the students that I had. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so in that year, I started Everyday Zen Foundation in the, with, with the possibility that it might be a way that I could live financially and support myself. Mm-hmm. 
And if not, I would have to think of some other way. Mm-hmm. So a few friends got together, and it turns out it costs a lot of money to set up a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any money. So they all said, we'll, we'll divvy it up, and we'll pay for it, and we'll do it. And they set it up. I'm really grateful to them for doing that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I started during that year when I was being supported to start to generate a cushion of financial mm-hmm. uh, cushion for Every Day Zen. And then it looked like, you know, this might work. It might be feasible. And then uh, I've been doing it ever since, and Every Day Zen has always operated in the, in the black since then, and we've never done any fundraising. I don't have to raise, mm-hmm. it's just whenever I show up, I, I ask people for donations, they give donations, and that's how Every Day Zen is run. Mm-hmm. There's no fundraising, there's no nothing. Mm-hmm. We send out a letter every year, and people send money back maybe, but mm-hmm. we don't have any big, never got a grant, never got a big donation from anybody. It's all mm-hmm. pretty grassroots, all volunteers who run the organization. It's amazing how much we can do, considering that we don't. Ha- it doesn't exist. Every day Zen is a virtual organization. Mm-hmm. John Evans, um, first of all, let me acknowledge that you encouraged me to have this conversation with Norman, for which I'm very grateful. Secondly, um, you are a student of Norman's, and uh, we've known each other for some time. You were um, previously a st- student of Bernie Glassman's in New York. Uh, we were students of Bernie together. Oh, you were students yeah. of Bernie's together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, what drew you to um, become a student of Norman's and, and take vows as a, what, monk? Is that the right? Yes. Priest. What drew you uh, to uh, uh, Take vows and become a student of Norman. A student of Norman. I had met Norman, uh, as he said, um, I think in '82. It was more 82. like uh, 80, 84, uh, no, '82, '83, in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he and Kathy came to uh, Zen Community of New York, uh, and we were in the midst of the bakery business. With Bernie Glassman. With Bernie, yes. I was the sales director for the bakery and a priest uh, and um, the guest master at the house, at the house where we all lived. Uh, And Kathy and Norman and their twin boys were really the first kids we had living at the, the practice center. And I remember people... Um, being impressed because they were from Zen Center in San Francisco as being much more um, formal in some ways, much more, um, oh, I don't know. Um, I can remember you know, some fear that they would be um, more pious in a sense than <laughs> we were. Um, we were in the midst of this very ecumenical community with Bernie. We had rabbis and we had um, uh, Catholic priests and we had Sufis and we had Greek Orthodox. We, you know, Lex Hickson was a, a very uh, a big part of our community. And then Norman arrived, and it was our hope that Norman would stay and 
become uh, one of the teachers there. I don't think you you ever knew that. Um, no, I never did know that. Um, he was just also somebody who worked in the bakery on the bread line or the cookie line. I don't mm-hmm. know which one. Um, it, it was a very hard job. And uh, I remember being impressed that he was one of the people who never complained because everybody else complained. <laughs> uh, it was a terrible schedule that we were keeping. Uh, and just uh, over um, those years, the many, many people left uh, from the original group that I was part of. And as people left, we took on more and more jobs. So um, I got to see Norman in the bakery more when I started to have to be part of the baking crew. <laughs> and, and, and all the years later, when I came to the Bay Area in 2009, I had been aware of Norman doing this, um, but had never been able to get to Tassajara, which was the only place I thought you were teaching. I didn't realize you taught actually here in the Bay Area. Um, but my first month living in the Bay Area, I went to uh, the seminar that um, I still go to on Wednesday nights in Tiburon. And it was, I feel, the, that, again, sort of ecumenicism that I've always been drawn to that um, is in Norman's teaching. That's a kind of um, combination, I feel like, of... Uh, of um, poetry and, and imagination and art and religion and his ethics, um, his integrity. I had searched quite a bit and had uh, had kind of a hilarious, wonderful time in the years between leaving Zen uh, Community of New York uh, and coming to Everyday Zen. But I always knew that Zen was my root home, uh, and I wanted to practice with a teacher and community where I felt that ethics, and for me, vows, I wanted, I wanted to want have a practice that had vows, <laughs> yes, um, it's good for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it would be good them. for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not there. I'm actually not sure it would be good for me. Well, the impossibility of them, though. I mean, that was uh, the, the impossibility, impossible wonderfulness of them. You know, I vow to save all beings. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not drawn to impossible vows. I, I feel about that. If I vow something, I want to really mean it. And um, so, you know, like, like, you know, 40 years at Commonweal, um, I have been faithful to Commonweal, you know, I have been faithful to Commonweal, and I have never given up on it, you know, and there have been lots of times of struggle, as Sean well knows, but uh, for me, you could call that a vow, but I never vowed it. Mm-hmm. it I see that as, um, uh, in some ways, the way I see my marriage with my wife, Cheryl, we both had the intention 30 years ago to make this marriage work. We had, I, I believe in intention. 
mm-hmm. more than vows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like my new little book on healing with cancer is called Intentional Healing. Mm-hmm. I believe in the power of intention. And I believe, you know, when people come to the Cancer Help Program, I say to them, the power of your intention is what matters here, you know. So intention works for me because it has a flexibility uh, that, that acknowledges our humanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like that wonderful Catholic uh, teacher, the woman on the East Coast in New Jersey, who says that spiritual life is fall down, get up, fall down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we did a new school conversation with her, too. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. Um, so to me, the language of vows doesn't build in the complete acknowledgement of our humanity in the way the language of intention does. Mm -hmm. You know, not that I... In other words, this is (laughs) just, quote, just words. And I I just am so aware of my own radical imperfection that vows have never been the place that Mm -hmm. I wanted. But I'm grateful that you guys Mm -hmm. work with vows. Well, you know, it's very Jewish not to have vows. You know that. I didn't know. Yes, yes. Judaism doesn't look kindly on the idea of vows. Jews don't take vows. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right in line with your forefathers. With my forefathers. Yeah. Though not with my Christian mother's side. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And and I'm not Jewish, and I I grew up in a household where there there wasn't anything like a vow. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much of a container of anything. But, I mean, I I feel so, um, in a way, silly saying this, but as you were saying vows, my mind was also going to, well, what rhymes with vows is bows. I really like bows, too. Mm. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. wows. (laughs) Cows. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it it was nows. um, You know, there's something playful for me in some ways uh, about all of it. Also, to answer your question, um, I did want to study with someone who um, um, who loved um, the playfulness mm. of this. Mm. And um, Norman's smile and laughter mm. um, is a big draw for me, mm. and his kind of weird sense of humor. Um, <laughs> You talk, I think, in Training and Compassion, maybe in several places, about how the original Buddhist teaching was, the Buddha said, suffering exists and I teach a way to go beyond suffering. Mm-hmm. And then how the Mahayana tradition of uh, the Bodhisattva, who's going to keep coming back until everybody is saved, is a, a later development of Buddhism. Is that mm-hmm. basically correct? More or less, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so the bodhisattva vows are a whole set that were added on to the original teaching. Is that true? Well, I think contemporary scholarship would argue that all the elements of the Mahayana Buddhism were present in the earliest okay. version of Buddhism, okay. but were emphasized and stressed much more strenuously in Mahayana than they ever were in the earlier Buddhism. Uh And it's almost like lifted out as being central. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, 
you know, I think we Western people have the model of you know like Catholicism, Protestantism. You know, as a kind of schism, and, a, and 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 they say that maybe that never took place in quite that way in Buddhism. That it was just uh, you know more organic development. And so, in your book, Training and Compassion: Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. Um, this is divided into uh, seven points and 59 slogans for generating compassion and resilience. And um, could you say something about the seven points and the 59 slogans? Well, that organization comes from the root. I'm, this is not my idea. I'm no, just commenting, commenting on, right. a, on a traditional right. text. Right. And that's how the traditional text is organized. Right. It makes seven points. And then there are these, each point has sub-points, and the sub-points are the slogans. Right. Um, Slogan was an interesting word to choose. Well, it's not my choice. I think that's the word that was chosen by Trungpa Rinpoche, who commented on that text, uh-huh. and used again by Pema Chodron, who commented on the text. There are, mi- there are numerous. I was actually <laughs> very similar to my Psalms book, where I was totally surprised that anybody would publish it. I was equally surprised that this book was published because there are so many commentaries in English already mm. to this root text that I didn't really think anybody would want another one, much less from a Zen teacher who, you know, for whom that's not a primary tradition. So uh, in the most famous commentaries, they use the word slogan, uh, um, but basically it's, you know, we could say uh, phrases or watchwords or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. But in a way, slogan is a nice word, like an advertising slogan. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Yeah. Somehow, sutra has a softness to it that slogan, slogan just has this yeah. strange sound. It to does. It. Yeah. I but wish there were a better word. That's. What yeah. Well, sutra in English, sutra is uh, a word used to describe longer texts. So, uh, I guess a sutra could be just a verse. But usually, like, the Diamond Sutra is a text of, you know, 50 pages. The Heart Sutra is a text of one. So the the word sutra doesn't quite work. Yoga Sutras are are typically short. Or some of them are short. Right. But more than... But you're right. They're more than a single phrase like this. So just uh, for our listeners, point one, resolve to begin. And the subhead is train in uh, in the preliminaries. Point two, train in empathy and compassion. Um, uh, and there's absolute compassion and then uh, relative compassion. And point three, transform bad circumstances into the path. Point four, make practice your whole life. Point five, assess and extend. Six is the, dis- the discipline of relationship. Seven is live with ease in a crazy world. Um, I think the one I'd like to ask you to... Um, talk a little more about for a start is uh, transforming bad circumstances into the path. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's a really pivotal one. Right. uh, Because uh, there is the idea that we all have that we want good things to happen. Right. We don't want bad things to happen. When bad things happen the first thing we want to do is figure out how we can make them go away. Mm-hmm. 
uh, eliminate them, turn them into good things. Mm-hmm. And people will approach spiritual practice with that same attitude. Uh, life is difficult and there's a lot of pain, and I'm hoping that my spiritual practice will help me to get rid of that pain and eliminate it and cast it aside so that I can have more ease and more joy. And so, uh, but when you think about what compassion is, compassion really is being willing to go toward pain, have a positive uh, sense that I want to feel this pain on behalf of others. I want my heart to be opened by this pain. I want to be connected to this person uh, through the pain that they are feeling and that I too should want to feel. Uh, so in order to develop compassion, you have to first develop the capacity to reverse the normal and natural tendency to want to uh, eliminate and move away from pain mm-hmm. and change that to a desire to move toward pain so that compassion can be developed. So that's what really that slogan is about. Noticing all the ways in which we automatically uh, run away from pain or, or uh, hold pain at arm's length or deny it and reverse that and, and be able to move toward it and see that, as we all also know, there's no growth without some pain. Right? Pain is the opportunity to grow and to feel more deeply. So to kind of recognize that and begin to actually practice moving toward rather than away from pain. You're listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. You know, um, I make a distinction between empathy and compassion. Do you make that distinction? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, all words, the more you look at them, the more they have they slippery. So I know these words are used in different ways by different people in different communities, but in the book I actually simply say that uh, empathy, as I'm understanding it, is the ability to actually feel someone else's feelings. Yeah. And compassion is, a, in a way, a sub-set uh, of empathy, and that is to be able to feel someone else's feelings, particularly in the case of their suffering. Because empathy, I could feel someone's joy, I could feel someone's confusion, but compassion has to do with suffering. So I feel someone's suffering. That's really helpful. I I use them a little differently in relation to, you know, 30 years of work in the cancer help program. My experience is that I use them both with respect to suffering. In other words, one yeah. one can feel empathy for somebody else's suffering and one can feel compassion for somebody else's uh-huh. suffering. This came to me through Jonathan and Deanna Rose who run the Garrison Institute in New York and are old friends and, and Tibetan Buddhist practitioners. And Dalai Lama hangs out with them uh, at the Garrison Institute when he can. And... Um, and we were taking a walk up behind the Garrison Institute one day, and, and Deanna actually made this point, which was that um, if you, because they do a lot of work with burnout with, um, with uh, people who provide health support. Yeah. And um, 
And their view, which I think is true, is a lot of these people burn out because they are so empathic for the suffering of others. Right. And um, that they actually feel the suffering of others. Whereas compassion, rather than as you describe it in your usage, being a subset of empathy, is is deep caring for the suffering of others, but you don't necessarily have to feel it. You're right. Right? Right. And so I know in the Cancer Help Program, if I felt, if I acutely felt the suffering of everybody that came through, I think I would have burnt out a long time. Yes. Whereas um, I can feel compassion for their suffering without necessarily have to intensely feel right, the suffering right, all right, the time. Right. So, both uses are legitimate, um, and I can well imagine that since the purpose of Zen, in many ways, is uh, is to deepen ourselves through meeting suffering, therefore empathizing with the suffering of others and taking on their suffering would be further opportunity for practice. Mm-hmm. Whereas mine is sort of a less intense approach. It's like, yeah. I'll handle all the suffering that comes my way in life, but I don't need to go looking for it. Life yeah. will provide yeah. enough suffering, and I'm not going to seek to take on the suffering of others if I can be of greater service yes. by being compassionate. Yes, well, I'm, I'm actually uh, familiar with this use of the word empathy, as you describe it, right. in the caregiving community. Right because I work sometimes with people in that community. You and worked with Zen Hospice for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I work with Meta now. Right. So, um, yeah, so I'm aware of that. Um, but it's, I never thought of this until you just said that. It's, this a re- and I think this is a very, very important point and right. an interesting one. Right. The difference is right. that um, in training in compassion and in Buddhist mm-hmm. discussion, of compassion in general, it's essentially a religious uh, background. It's essentially a religious perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's where the absolute compassion side comes into it. And the absolute compassion side, which is part of this training and discussed in the book, has to do with the emptiness teachings that I mentioned before. It has to do with an essentially a religious perspective on reality, which enables you, given that, given that piece of it, which I think is not included in the caregiving community, of necessity, because the caregiving community is really talking about, uh, is, is coming from a psychological and healing perspective, but not necessarily embracing a religious perspective. It may, I mean, I'm sure that individuals may have their own ways, and maybe to some extent it does reference that, but it's not the main agenda there. Whereas in Buddhism, the religious perspective is the main agenda. The the compassion is part of that perspective. And so, given the absolute compassion and the work with absolute compassion, you, it's a kind of paradox because you can feel, you can be empathetic in just the way you're using the word with other people's suffering and not be burned out by it. Mm -hmm. Because you understand the suffering as inherently empty inherently painful and at the same time not painful. And there's a whole world of teachings that, you know, that 
go or go into that. And that's where the meditation comes into it, and the vowing, and the chanting, and the bowing, and all this stuff is for the purpose of, um, of evoking and training you in this kind of religious view of life, which makes it possible for you both to feel people's pain, really, really feel it in a way that, yes, from a caregiver's point of view, it'd be impossible. But from a religious point of view, is possible. So it's, it's the paradox is you feel it and you don't feel it. You, you feel it, but you don't, it doesn't like weigh you down and burn you out. I mean, theoretically, anyway. It's not to say that even someone with a strongly religious practice couldn't also burn out because they would not perfectly be able to digest these teachings. But that is the idea. So there's some, some, there's some difference there that's really interesting to think about. It is interesting. And if I were able to be empathic as well as compassionate, um, I think it would be better, um, both for me, if I, have, if I had the capacity to absorb that much suffering, and for the participants, because I think that when you are suffering, if another person isn't simply compassionate, as I'm using the term, but empathic as well, it responds to your suffering more deeply, you know. Well, maybe so. I, I yeah. would like to think that that's true. And, and I do know this. You say that, you would like to think that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 guess, I, guess I, don't, I guess I'm reluctant to say, well, yes, this is deeper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yes, I you should believe in this, it's deeper. I, I'm reluctant I to say that. it probably is deeper. Maybe it is, but yeah. I, I'm reluctant to reluctant kind of like assert it. that, you know. But you would like to think it was. True. I would like to think okay. so, yeah. yeah. But, but I do feel that I do feel the truth of what you're saying yeah. in, in this way that, that, and here's where these teachings, the emptiness teachings, and the religious perspective, mm-hmm. comes into play as a source of healing for another person. If someone's suffering a lot. Mm-hmm. And if I'm both, in your senses of the word, both empathetic and compassionate, and compassionate in the Buddhist sense that this text is arguing, what happens is I am receiving that person's suffering, and I'm feeling it. I'm not saying, you know, I can bring healing or it's going to be okay. I'm saying, yes, I really get and feel how absolutely devastating this is. And there's no, nothing pretty that can be said about it. I get how devastating this is. I really do. And I'm feeling it in this moment. I don't say that necessarily, but that's what, where I am. And simultaneously, on a religious level, I know that it's fundamentally okay. So if I could feel that, I don't say it necessarily, but if I could feel that, if I could manifest that feeling in my relating to the person, mm-hmm. that I think really is transformative because the person is not is getting that, yes, you're meeting me in the suffering because you're feeling it. You're not at a distance. You're not a professional. You're not a healer. You're not going to help. You're just right there with me feeling it, and you're just as devastated as I am. And I can tell that you are confident that it's okay. I, the suffering person, don't have that confidence. I feel like it's terrible and totally devastating. You're able to somehow communicate to me that you see the de- how devastating it is and you also have confidence that it's okay. That makes me feel a lot better. That makes me feel like, yes, this is terrible, 
but somehow or other, there's meaning in it. I can go that journey, and it can mean do something somehow or other that I'm not seeing now, and I see that reflected in your eyes and in your heart. Mm-hmm. That's where I think it really comes into play, and and that's and, and you know we're all working on that, right? We're all at some degree of, you know, maybe we would hope that our greatest spiritual masters have are able to do that and feel that, but the rest of us are all trying our best to, to go in that direction and more and more feel that. You know, this is such an interesting conversation. Uh, do you know my friend Steve Heilig? He's uh, at San Francisco Medical Society, works with Commonweal. He's very yeah, extraordinary. The name man. is familiar. I don't know he that I've met him. He was on the board of Zen Hospice for a long time. And, oh, maybe that's where I know him yeah, from, because I was on that board for ages, too. Yeah. Right, that's where um, I know him from. And so I have a particular allergy uh, which I may need to get over at some point because it's so intense, but but my reasons for the allergy may become apparent, which is that um, I sometimes meet Zen students who want to work with the dying for their own spiritual <laughs> right. glory. Or, right, right. And to my mind, <laughs> there are few things that I can imagine not wanting to be near if I were dying. Right. More than I would not want to be near. Right, right. And Steve Heilig had some great phrase. He said that at Zen Hospice they talked about them as, had some phrase, you know. But it it had to do with a sort of a competition that would take place. Well, I was with, you know. Right. And I find that horrific. Yeah. I, I just... I am so allergic to that. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's a charge for me. Um, you know, Shota Harada Roshi, my, my friend, the Zen practitioner, I helped him start a Zen hospice up on Whidbey Island where his center is. And um, he has a lovely phrase for that. He, he listens. He says, well, they're just not ripe yet. You know? <laughs> so that would be a less um, charged way of referring to this. But truly... Um, People who, um, people who are somehow using the suffering of others um, incorrectly yeah. is really hard for me. Yes, well, you see, that's another deeply Jewish attitude. So uh-huh. there, there you go. You can't uh-huh. escape. <laughs> Your dad. <laughs> because in Judaism, you know, the dead are taboo. Right, and the more you know, holy you are, uh-huh. the more you have to stay away from the dead. Uh-huh. And I think that, and of course, everybody in the contemporary world, we think, "Geez, you know, that is really sick. You know, that's terrible. What's wrong with them?" But actually, I've always understood that as being about because there's even a worse. The thing that you mm-hmm. mentioned is bad enough, but there's even something worse than that, mm-hmm. which is how exciting death is. Right. I mean, it's that the best right. drug of all. You know, it's right. it's you know it's better than uh, any. I mean, it's more plus. The drug is just a drug, but death is like really important. Yeah, right. You know, right. And it's addictive. Right. So, um, right. So I I completely agree with you. Um, uh, and you really but, find it. This is. Oh yeah. Oh no no. This is not hypothetical. No. In fact, I would say that you find it more than not in this whole. 
um, it's almost a fashion now for volunteer work, right? That's right. I it's not only the dead, but also the poor and the right. unfortunate. Right. You know, it, it becomes a kind of, first of all, it becomes an identity and it becomes a thrill. Right. And it becomes a kind of uh, very um, socially acceptable right. in certain circles form of his self-indulgence. Exactly. Right. And status, the yeah. status in it you too. Know, I, yeah. I'm a hospice volunteer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, to uh, I mean, I think this is in so many of these things. I think it's really a matter of it's not a balance. It's really a matter of how to hold these things in the heart in the right way, because if it's me. Kind me, helpful me, helping pathetic you in the bed who's dying, and thank God it's not me, and it's you, but I have skills and I can help you. That's not right either. No. Right? So it has to be, uh, you, you know, you and I are really not in any different position. That's true. Even, even whether it's poverty or right. deprivation or, or illness or death. You and I are not really in any different position, and we can encounter each other face to face. And I'm learning from you, and hopefully I'm bringing something to you, but I'm getting something from you as well. I think that does make sense, and I think that is the most effective way to uh, meet someone who's in need. Um, but yes, uh, on the one extreme is uh, I'm, I'm the great white hope saving you, Poor you. The other extreme is, you know, I am spiritually uh, feeding off of your right. illness, and those are extremes, you know. And I think the reality is that this is; these are not two different. My helping you and your helping me is the same thing. Mm -hmm. Not two different things. Another really, to me, interesting point in this conversation is um, going back to your sense that when you listen to somebody with complete compassion, that you're feeling what they're feeling, and they know that, but they also know that for you, no matter how horrible this is, it's also okay. Did I yeah, listen yeah, correctly? Right, okay. Right. So for me... Um, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's not okay that people have to go through this. I know that from the point of view of the greater universe and the kind of infinite space, which I think is where you're coming from, at some level everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So I get that. Mm -hmm. But... I find that um, I find that to project that it's okay because uh, I can go to that place, but somehow it feels to me more compassionate to to say this is really not okay with me that mm -hmm. you're having to go through this. And so what I guess I'm trying to get to is, and you talk a, a lot about this, uh, is uh, the power of listening. Mm -hmm. And 
I completely agree with you about the power of listening. But to me, when we practice that deep listening, we don't have to have an opinion about whether it's right. okay or not okay. Right. We are simply creating the space of deep listening where the person telling of their suffering or their story can hear themselves. Yeah. And it is precisely the fact that we are not saying it's either okay or not okay, but simply listening to their truth with compassion, with yeah. kindness, yeah. that creates the deepest learning. You're listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. Yes. So, I'm curious, I, I'm, these are spaces where words get lost. Well, exactly. That's yeah. the trouble, because I yeah. completely agree with what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Because part of the pain that you are feeling is that it's not okay. Right. Because if we just can gloss over it, well, you're in pain, but it's okay, then... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, so you're, I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and yet, uh, at the same time, uh, yes, you are receiving the pain, including the part of the pain that says this is not okay. But you are receiving, maybe maybe the better, another language for it that maybe is better is you're receiving it with equanimity. With yeah, that, that I can Maybe that's a better way to, of putting yeah, it. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which maybe the person doesn't feel at that right. moment, in which maybe you're just simply having the demeanor of a not, a not a faked, but a real right. profound sense of equanimity can, can help the person. Yes, that that's I, what I meant when I said it's I okay. Yeah, yeah and, that's and So really maybe that's helpful. a bad way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. There's a beautiful passage in one of your books, and uh, 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 let's see if I can find this. Oh yeah, I've got it marked. What a great thing. Uh, I would explain Judaism, perhaps, as a very elaborate way of life, based on mindfulness, awareness of the absolute in all occasions, and the creation of a community very rigorously based on this awareness, there is a strength in this kind of life that gives nothingness, parenthesis God, higher consideration than what is practical or desirable from one's own point of view. It makes perfect sense to me since one's own point of view or convenience is always shifting, only nothing remains fixed. So what was stunning to me in the <laughs> passage was the absolute equation of God and nothing. <laughs> and I've reflected on that, and I think there's a lot to be said for that equation. <laughs> but um, do you say that often? Uh, that God and nothing are the same? Uh, I'm not sure. But, I, I, you know, I'm, as a per parenthesis here, let me say I'm really enjoying this book through your reading it. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I think of that book as a kind of a clumsy early work that I don't really uh, think, you know, in my, in my imagination of it is, you know, very... A very good book, but when I hear you reading it, it sounds much better than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. That's wonderful. I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, I liked it a lot. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it was it was a struggle that writing that book. It's a long story, but mm -hmm. 
Anyway, uh, yes, I think that, um, I mean, the uh, discussion of what God is in Judaism throughout the ages is really fascinating. Yeah. And I think that uh, although I'm writing in a very uh, uh, casual and easy way and taking a huge amount of thought and debate and telescoping it into a phrase, I don't think that that's an unjust reflection of much of what is said. In fact, in Jewish mysticism, the name, the, the Jewish mysticism proposes that what we call God and the God that acts in the Torah is actually a, you know, a development of something that's prior to that, and it's called Ein Sof, right. which is nothing, nothingness. Mm. You know. So... Uh, Yes, but it's not the nothing, obviously not the nothing that's the opposite of something. No, it's the nothingness that is fullness. Yeah. Right. Right, so when we get into that kind of discourse, then right away, we, right. You know, what are we talking about and what are we meaning? And, right. and that's where uh, language becomes a real dance that we have to right. engage in with some fullness. But yes, that's actually not a bad, uh, I should... Find out what page that's on and quote it. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good. It's a. It's a very. You know. I thought to myself, my God. You know. I, I must have. I was maybe forty or something when I wrote that. You have to be young to uh, think that you can just <laughs> explain Judaism in three sentences the way that I did. Terrible. You know. I would never have the audacity to do that now. Isn't it nice to be able to speak of forty as young? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a gift. Yes. Um, you wrote a beautiful book called "Taking Our Places: The Buddhist Path to Grow, The Buddhist Path to Growing Up," uh, which um, which was a lovely reflection on a number of years uh, uh, when you were at Zen Center, where you counseled four teenage boys, um, mm -hmm. and um, and it wasn't an easy trip. Um, because at the start, neither you nor they had any idea what was going to happen. <laughs> right. But you started with a couple of commitments when you agreed to do it. What were the commitments that you asked the boys and the parents to make? Well, you tell me because I can't remember. Was it okay, the, the commitments were... Um, so long ago, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, let's see. Yeah, three important conditions. The first... It was important that the boys choose for themselves to commit to the group. Although the parents were enthusiastic, it wasn't their enthusiasm that mattered. Yeah. Second, the boys would have to have ownership and creative control of the group, not me and not the parents. I would give the best guidance I could, but the effort was really about fostering genuine mature but if the effort was really about fostering genuine maturity, we would have to trust that the boys were capable of maturity and would grow into it as the group went on. Finally, the group would have to have a rule of confidentiality. The boys needed to know that they could think and say what they were really feeling without any fear I'd communicate it to their parents or that the boys themselves would tell other friends. So yeah. those, that was the starting play. Yeah, yeah. right, now I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, if you could sort of condense that experience into a, a, a brief version of what happened, how would you describe it? Well, uh, it was really a process of 
forming a group uh, from um, individuals to come together to be a group and through that process that each individual would change and would develop uh, and, and, and the, in, in this case develop a degree of maturity that they didn't have when they came into the group through but taking responsibility for the group and for themselves. But you, you mean something by maturity that you distinguish from what people often think of as maturity. Yeah. How so? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, a sense of knowing oneself honestly mm -hmm. at some depth, mm -hmm. to me that's what maturity is about. Mm -hmm. And people usually define maturity completely externally. Mm -hmm. Uh, certain benchmarks, you know, out externally, mm -hmm. being married, having a career of a at a certain level, and so on and so on. Not that those things don't have also have their inner mm -hmm. analogs; they, they certainly do. But to me, it's the inner uh, ripening of one's own life that is the maturity, rather than the external marks. Mm -hmm. You. Uh you said earlier that you were the first abbot of Zen Center who, if I remember your words clearly, was an ordinary person, that you weren't enlightened. Mm -hmm. um, and um, as I mentioned, I have this uh, friendship with Shoto Harada Roshi, a sort of a respected Japanese Zen teacher. Um, and his students, he has a, a view that, that his students really do have to experience something in order to be ripe enough to be teachers themselves. And mm -hmm. it's a very small number of his students that reach that point. Right. In your writing, you talk about, um, for example, your teacher who ran the Berkeley Zen Center, mm -hmm. and you talk about his great virtue was simply his steadiness, mm -hmm. that he was just there sitting day after day, going on, carrying mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, you don't speak of him as enlightened. Mm -hmm. um, so this raises, the, for me at least, the fundamental question of the distinction between that strand of uh, Zen, which really is about achieving a certain level of enlightenment in order to be a teacher, mm -hmm. as opposed to that strand of Zen that says, you know, for example, you say, it's not even always best to have uh, the more enlightened teacher. You, you may do better with somebody more ordinary. Mm -hmm. So how do you hold my rather innocent perception of those mm -hmm. different aspects of Zen? Well, yes, those are two different. Uh, I mean, it's not just me mm -hmm. making this up. I mean, there are two different schools of Zen, and they tend to, I mean, more or less, it's complicated, but more or less have those two different attitudes. Um, but 
you know, uh, like, and, and I, as I'm saying this, I, I uh, make a footnote in the beginning that maybe this is not entirely true or maybe it's just my imagination of it. But I've known American Zen students who spend decades, pretty much their entire adult life, have spent their entire adult life in Japan studying under enlightened Zen teachers, striving for their own enlightenment and not achieving it. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, it's rare. It's only some students who will have this depth of enlightenment. And I think to myself, that's sad, you know? Mm -hmm. That's, are they being served? Now maybe they are, maybe they would say, you know, I don't regret a minute of it, it's been a wonderful life. But maybe they would say, Yes, it's been a wonderful life and I don't regret it and I'm deeply disappointed mm -hmm. that I was not able to achieve what I've been striving for all this time. So that just seems sad to me, you know. I don't want, I, I want to practice with people and I want each and every person to feel that they have been realized and transformed by their practice. So I don't have a standard of enlightenment or, I mean, I recognize that this is a real thing and I, and I have, I, I, I've never met Shota Harada Roshi, but I'm sure he is an unusual person. I'm sure he, he, seems he is. He to be a pretty unusual person. Yeah, I bet he is and I bet he really is an enlightened person. So I don't, I don't, um, I, I'm, there are enlightened teachers. Well, I mean, only are, a Buddha knows a Buddha, right? So I can't speak to yeah. somebody else's enlightenment. So I wasn't trying to characterize... No, I understand. I, understand. I was simply yeah. saying that in that tradition yeah. it seems to yeah, be yeah. the actual intention. Yeah, and I, and I think, I think that, uh, and I think it's probably different with different teachers, but he's a very classical right. Rinzai Zen teacher, and right. so yes, uh, so there, there, there is a difference here, and it's, right. it's a big difference. Right. But when you said that you would like every one that practices with you to feel transformed and what was yeah. the other word you and feel some realized that realized. their life has been yeah. realized yeah. you would like that and yet there's a passage in here somewhere where you say um, um, that a lot of people approach their practice with the hope that they will be realized and transformed and they practice for years and Maybe they're not that realized and transformed, but they're still, in other words, you, how can I say this? There's a dimension in which if you are practicing with the instrumental intention of becoming realized and transformed, that becomes an obstacle. Exactly. Right. Right. So on the one hand, you would like your students to experience that. They would surely like to experience yeah. that. On the other hand, that intention on their part and potentially on your part as their teacher yeah. might become an obstacle. Right. Right. So I think one has to let go of that right. hope and wish and right. striving right. and just be willing to do the practice wholeheartedly for itself. Right. And when you re re release yourself to that possibility, that's when you right. can look back and say, isn't right. this wonderful? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I actually, my own perception is that it does happen mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. I actually 
uh, I mean, I think it's right that in Harada Roshi's um, tradition and style and understanding of the practice, very few mm -hmm. realize the way. In our tradition and style of practice, I do feel that almost everyone mm -hmm. does realize the way. I mean, yesterday, you know, uh, everybody who came to see me yesterday had that, was telling me that. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of wonderful, you know, to hear from people that they felt this in their own lives. Not in some spectacular way, but in some just way of, I'm grateful for the, to be this, to live, to have this life, and to be the person that I am. It's been a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering, but I'm really happy now. And I feel I have a way of life and a way of practice that will see me through to the very end, and I'm, and I'm grateful and I'm happy. To me, that's what we hope for. Mm -hmm. And yes, if we strive for it, it stands in the way. Mm -hmm. But if we let go of that, of that effort and that struggle and that rejection of our lives as they are now, we can, that can happen. So I, I've been surprised by it, to tell you the truth. I didn't know that that would happen when we started Every Day Zen, but I've been pleasantly surprised that Every Day Zen does bring all this to people's lives most of the time. Anybody who actually devotes themselves to it, it does require effort. You know, you come regularly, you keep practicing on your own, you apply yourself, so it's not like Right. There's nothing to it. There is a big effort involved, but it's an effort that is actually a doable effort mm -hmm. for an average person mm -hmm. who's living in this world as we know it, working, having family, and all that. It can be done. Mm -hmm. doesn't require going to monasteries and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, and so that makes me happy. You know? mm -hmm. It's great. There's an equal measure of tremendous suffering uh, when you people are getting you know, brain cancer and dying and their children are committing suicide and all that, that happens almost every single day in my life. I, there's somebody that I know that has that story. And then also, on the other hand, people saying, what a brilliant life, mm -hmm. you know, I'm so happy. Mm -hmm. So there is that. It's just different, it's a different, and I, and I think the two different uh, kinds of Zen, first of all, it's not like they're totally separate. No. They interpenetrate. Absolutely. So I think that if you talk long enough to Harada Roshi, he would yeah. say these same things. Absolutely. And, and also the enlightenment aspect of the practice is also yeah. an, an aspect of our practice too. So they're mutually supportive, and I think they need one another. I agree with that. They need one yeah. another. They're, they're just different emphases. Exactly. Yeah. Sean, you've been listening to this conversation. Any thoughts or reflections? One pattern that I have heard that I didn't know about your life, Norman, is that you um, have kind of made some decisions to um, disidentify several times. Mm -hmm. um, disidentify Disidentify himself as the way he, he has been, you uh -huh. know, to... To um, to not be the the young religious um, gloomy kid uh, at some point, whether that was conscious decision or not, you know, and then become the kind mm -hmm. of more all American kid, and then mm -hmm. um, in in college you said you made a self conscious mm -hmm. uh, decision um, to leave other things behind, and I'm I'm 
wondering, um, because Zen does seem to be about um, not having any identity that you stick to, um, if um, there is any wish at this point in your life um, to shed something and, and do something different than what you're doing. Not really. If I was only going to live for another week, I would just keep my schedule as it is now, and at the end of the week, perish. So not really. Although I, I, it is, I, I would. I, I, I still my mania for writing has so far not diminished. <laughs> and um, you know, one of the. Uh, mythological elements of Alan's life was that he had a book he was writing for 30 years. Mm-hmm. He finished the book and died. Mm. So my idea is I always have another book to write so then I won't die so fast. Right? I'll keep, yeah. I can't die yet because I have to have another idea for a book. So I do, I, I do wish that I could uh, continue to do all the things I'm doing but have much more time uh, to write and do and be contemplative, especially the poetry. I, I really, I'm, I'm a very happy person when I can lose myself in my work in poetry, which is relatively rare. I produce a lot of work because I write it on the fly, but then the contemplation of it, the editing of it, the putting it together into text, is hard for me to find the time for. So I wish I had more time for that. But other than that, I don't want to go anywhere. Or, I don't want to skydive. I mean, it'd be nice, but... But is there something you want to study? You're a big oh, I have a million, things, a million things I want to study, yeah. A million things. Just tell us a couple. Well, uh, I would like to read, uh, study more philosophy, Western philosophy. It mostly has to do with philosophy and poetry. I would really like to have time to read all of this or all of that, and I, and I never. What strands of philosophy speak to you most deeply? Well, like I'm in a Heidegger reading group, and I've been reading Heidegger uh, with this group for a long time. Um, but uh, Heidegger, uh, Levinas, Wittgenstein. I'd like to go back and reread all the Wittgenstein that was so important to me 30 years ago. I'd be totally different now, but I really don't have much time for that. Um, um, Derrida, I haven't really read, you know, so, and I've just been reading um, um, uh, more Walter Benjamin and Adorno. I've been reading Adorno lately, and I would love to read some of his more deeper text, you know, which I, I don't even think about starting because there's no way I could do it. So stuff like that, contemplative uh, reading of deep texts, I really, I really enjoy. And then, yeah, in poetry, there's, now there's so many, there's an explosion of poets, you know, so there's so many great poets that are my friends and contemporaries. Who, whose poetry do you like? Oh, well, oh, there's so many. I you mentioned even... Philip Whalen was a great mentor for you. Yes, yes. But I've read Philip's works, all of them, yeah. you know, many times. But yes, I could go back and read them again. But, um, well, like, um, 
my contemporaries, like uh, uh, Leslie Scalapino, Charles Bernstein, Lynn Higinian, uh, Ron Silliman, uh, Barrett Watton, Carla Harriman, uh, Steve Benson. These are all people who were mm-hmm. deeply close friends of mine for years and years and years. And it's like pathetic that I really haven't read their, I've read many of their books, but I haven't read them all and I haven't read them again, you know, and I haven't really thought about them. So I'd love to be able to do that, not to mention, you know, uh, you know Robert Creeley and Alice Notley. I've read, not read all of Alice's books and read them again. And so there's lots of reading I would love to do. And I still have a mania for this and, and writing. I can't read without writing, so it makes me write. And then pretty soon one thing leads to another, and I've got this mammoth big work plan. And it, so I have a, a lot of enthusiasm for all that. And so having more time for that would be nice. But probably, I mean, I know how life goes. Probably if someone gave me that time, I would be bored or I would get a headache or I wouldn't be able to do it because something else would come up. So I know that it's a fantasy that doesn't really matter whether it happens or not. Well, we began with a poem, so I'd like to ask you to end with a poem. Do you have something by heart that you could uh, share with us? No, I never remember any of my poems. Well, you've got a bunch of your books here, is there Yeah, surely there's something in one of these books, yeah. Yeah. That would be worth reading. Uh, let's see. Uh, unfortunately, in recent years, my poems are very, very long, 30, 40 pages long. So it's hard to find something. You can read an excerpt. Too. Yeah, I have to read an excerpt. Well, this is uh, from the series of poems called After Alberto Cairo. And Alberto Cairo is a fake poet invented by uh, Fernando Pessoa. And he wrote a lot of his poems in the guise of Alberto Cairo. So these are my imitations of Fernando Pessoa's fake poet, Alberto Cairo. My Alberto Cairo is a goat herd in some unidentified place, maybe in Portugal or something like that. And he spent his entire life herding goats, and he writes poems about goat herding. So this is the fourth of a long series of poems by Alberto Cairo. When will I die, and does it matter? Is it even sensible, this question of when? The goats do not think such things. They do not question, laugh, or cry. They have no need to do so, as I must. So it may be that goats do not die, because to think of dying, which is not possible to do, except as a groping, urging one onward in time, is to die. And not to think of dying, to have no such word, no such thought, no such question, no such emotion or lack of emotion associated with such a thought or word is not to die, so goats do not die? And if, as it may be, my own thought of death is a self-reflexive impasse, a waiting room at the frontiers of thought, full of benches and walls, 
constructed from confusion, a reflex of the language I speak, a crude local dialect, and therefore not really a thought of death at all, but simply an expression of fear, my own fear, or perhaps a fear I have received from the goats, who have no other means of expressing fear save through me. Or is if not that, then possibly my dialect itself, expressing its locale and limit. Then it is possible. I too do not die. So that's Norman Fisher. Series. Poet, Zen Buddhist priest, uh, founder of Everyday Zen Foundation, author of 16 to 20 books, including Training and Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong, Taking Our Places, The Buddhist Path to Truly Growing Up, Jerusalem Moonlight, An American Zen Teacher Walks the Path of His Ancestors, and a wonderful book of translation of the Psalms. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great fun. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. This is part two of this two-part conversation. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.